Good to see everyone. Nice to see Ralph back. Good job, Ralph. Me and Ralph were comparing contractions at the beginning of the service as to who had the fastest and uh, sleekest contraction. Um, today I thought um, I would invite you into a process that I've been probably for about 30 years. I've been running things that um, came to be called huddles. Uh, the reason that they were called huddles was because in England, it sounded cool to come up with an American word uh, that somehow would um, indicate the gathering of people for a little bit of instruction, a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of uh, enthusiastic chatter. Of course, we get over here and, you know, it's not that exciting, uh, a, a word. But, um, but huddles now are populating the planet. There are tens of thousands of them all around the world. Hundreds of thousands of people are using the, the huddle as a model and calling it that, and then using tools within that huddle uh, to help them in their journey of discipleship with Jesus. And um, I've been doing those face-to-face -face for a long time, but uh, probably about 2005, I and um, just a small team of people began to explore the idea of doing huddles online. We wanted to be transcontinental, and uh, we wanted to find ways of doing it. And at the time, uh, there were very few um, technical tools uh, available to us. Skype still couldn't be used with more than just a couple of people. And so we had all kinds of uh, technical paraphernalia to make it possible. I think we called it Tixio at one point. It came out of France, and uh, Sally would hold the cables together underneath my desk whilst I was leading the huddle, because uh, if she didn't, the whole thing would fall apart. Uh, but eventually, eventually, um, I think about 2012, Zoom came along and uh, lifted the cloud of technical uncertainty uh, for all of us. And um, I have one of, the, uh, one of the smallest Zoom numbers because I was one of the very first people to, uh, to get going on Zoom. So this has been something that I've done pretty much every week of my life, except for vacation and retreat for the past 30 years. But of course, many of you uh, don't know that that's part of my weekly fare. It's the, the thing that probably outside of preaching I do more of than anything else. And so today I thought what I'd do is I'd invite you into a huddle experience. There's lots and lots of you here, and there's even more of you online. Uh, the way very often I'll do a huddle is we'll introduce a subject one week, and then we'll process the kairoses, process the things that God is alerting us to over the coming weeks. And so today, I'm going to look at the passage that we have in front of us as if it's one of those first weeks where we look at some material and we begin to ask ourselves, what are the kairoses? What are the things that God is alerting us to that he wants to teach us in, that he wants to take us into as we learn together? So if that's all right with you, that's what we'll do. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, they said to him, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears 
Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he'd said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So here we have a, a really famous last will and testament. Among all of the statements in the Old and New Testament, we have here, perhaps alongside those of the Lord Jesus himself, one of the most important last statements of a discipling leader. And what we, what we see in Paul as a disciple-making person are themes, are principles, are things that you and I, in our daily life, really would do well to apply to our lives and to the lives of those around us. Now, it may well be that you're sitting there thinking, well, this is Paul and not me. Uh, this is somebody who has extraordinary gifts and talents, somebody who has an extraordinary calling, a unique particular ministry and mission. But let me remind you that every person in this room looks like a sheep from the front and a shepherd from behind. In other words, you're all looking to someone for an example and a lead. And there's at least one person in your life who's looking to you. You may not even know who that person is. A child, a grandchild, a friend, a neighbor. It's amazing when you speak to people years afterwards, how it is that your life has influenced and impacted the lives of so many people. And yet, so often we're oblivious of these things. But all of us here have responsibilities for particular people in our lives. Even if we're not aware of the people that we're influencing, we are aware of some people whose lives have been given to us 
as a responsibility to be a friend, to be a neighbor, to be a member of a house church, to, to be one who accompanies another. And because of that, all of us are in the same business. We're all in the same business as Jesus and Paul, the business of making disciples. And if you're going to make a disciple, there are three things that you need. Now, for some of you, this is kind of old hat, and it's uh, really quite ordinary stuff to you. Others of you have never seen this before in your life. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how you respond or otherwise to this. But there are three ways to make a disciple. In other words, there are three components as we make disciples. There are the important things that we need to say, the, the important things that we need to share. And they're not just revel they're not just information, they're revelation. Paul is sharing particular things, and he's describing to the people that are his disciples how it is that he has spoken. He will describe the ways in which he's lived his life in front of them, and he'll encourage them in ways that will challenge them to take the work on and to take the things that he's shared, things that he's demonstrated, apply them to their own lives, and then work them out in their own circumstances. So, when you look at this passage, it's very clear that what Paul is doing is giving these three things a very clear airing. In verse 20, 20, it says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything to you that might be helpful to you. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus. So when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, these people that have been his disciples, we see in Acts chapter 19 that when people became obstinate and began to oppose Paul in the synagogue where he was preaching, he took them away and held daily discussions with them in the hall of Tyrannus, a, a hall in Ephesus that was available during the siesta hours of the day, when he could have opportunities to use this lecture room for the people that wanted to hear from him, and they were described as his disciples. Of course, we're making disciples for Jesus, but at some point, you're going to have to contend with the idea that somebody somewhere may want to follow you. And when they're following you, of course, your attitude is the same as that of Paul who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's not that, it's not that you are an end in yourself. You are simply, as it were, a person who along the way is directing someone to Jesus, not because you're a perfect example, but because you're a living example. Jesus doesn't need perfect examples. He needs living examples. And what he says to these people is that he hasn't hesitated to share with them anything 
that would be helpful. Do you know how many people teach other people things that help the teacher rather than the student? It's amazing how many times, and I've, I mean, I spent my whole life speaking to church leaders and pastors, so this is not like up for debate. It's amazing how many times teachers, preachers, pastors, people who are responsible for the instruction of others are teaching things that interest them, that tickle their ears, that fascinate them, that are the things that they want to explore. And so often what that means is that it's the stuff that's most helpful to the teacher and not to the disciple. Paul is saying, I've not hesitated to teach anything that would be helpful to you. Incredibly important here. When you're thinking about the people for whom you're responsible, what would help them? Your children, what would help them? Your spouse, what would, what would help them? Your neighbors, the members of your house church, what would help them? Not the thing that's most exciting to you, the thing that's most interesting. What would help them? One of the reasons why I'm a little shy about preaching thematic series of sermons, which is by far and away the most popular way in which churches present teaching and information, is that it very often ends up simply identifying the things that the teachers find most interesting rather than the things that others would find most helpful. And so one of the things that you'll notice about the way that we teach here is that we'll take large portions of scripture knowing that there's going to be all kinds of stuff in there that I don't know anything about, but that still will be helpful to you. There'll be all kinds of things in there that don't particularly interest me, but are enormously important to you. And by doing that, we can do the thing that Paul describes here when he talks about the information we can get much closer to the idea of sharing the whole counsel of God rather than the portions of the counsel of God that we find most interesting. What is it like to be committed to sharing the whole counsel of God around your kitchen table, in your house church, in your home? We can allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into the scriptures, into things that will be most helpful. And notice that the way that he describes things that are most helpful are really quite straightforward to us. He says that, of course, he's gone around preaching the kingdom. And he's talked about turning Turning to God. 
turning to God. Of course, turning to God means that we turn from something else. But so often we spend a lot of time detailing the things that we're turning from than really focusing on the person that we're turning to. We focus, even when it comes to the cross, not on the thing that Jesus saw as the joy set before him, which was a relationship with you, but more the sins that caused him to suffer and die. Of course, we turn from those things. But Paul's emphasis is not turning from, but turning to. Turning to God and trusting in Jesus. I think I might have to come up with a circle sometime. I think that might be quite helpful. Kind of maybe do a Kairos moment here. And anyway, I'll think about that and see if it comes up. I come up with anything. So, uh, so the thing that's going to be most helpful, what's it going to be? It's going to be something that causes a person to turn to God and trust in Jesus. When you're, when you're talking to people, it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating when you begin to explore with them what it is that they believe. It's really interesting. You know, when, when I'm out there in the world, as I often am, I'll often remark on a person's jewelry, piercing, tattoo. And I'll say, nice ink, what, what's all that about? And then they'll give you, they'll give you the journey that led to this particular memorial on their body. And so often it's a spiritual thing. And here is an opportunity for you and them, as it were, just to make one move turning towards God, a conversation that leads us to him and away from other things. Let's continue and progress with what it is that Paul wants to talk to us. Of course, he's describing the gospel of grace. He's talking about the whole counsel of God. But along with all of the things that he's sharing by way of revelation, there are, of course, all of these ways that he describes himself that people in Ohio find very troubling. Because he seems to be talking about himself. He seems to be promoting himself. This is not the kind of thing that people from Dayton do. So why is Paul doing it? There are a lot of people in the world who would find it really quite alarming that Paul would be so committed to describing in detail the things that he did out loud in public that other people saw that he then rehearsed again for other people to approve. What is that all about? Well, what it's about is simply this. The most important part of being a disciple is imitation. 
And if you don't know what it is that people are imitating, and if you can't identify what it is that people are imitating, everything is all accidental. It's all accidental. There's no intentionality about it at all. Unless we are aware of the fact that the most important component of any person's learning experience is imitation, of course, we'll be constantly religiously self-effacing and not drawing attention to the things that we're doing in front of other people because clearly we don't understand that that's the most important bit. Paul is not being arrogant here. Paul is not being a person that is promoting himself. He's being a person that understands that for another person to learn, they have to have a model. They have to have an example. They have to have an imitatable pattern. And when you look at the things that he says, it's really quite fascinating. He said, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and tears. He, he says, you, you know that I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. And you know that I taught you publicly and from house to house. In other words... Paul was able to do this outside and inside. He was able to do the imitative process outside in public. He was able to do the imitative process inside, in private. But it was always an imitative process. You and I have been suckered into believing that sharing information is the thing that will change people. If that were true, then God would have shouted his commands from the heavens. But he didn't. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You have the word living within you. And by that I don't mean the scriptures, I mean Jesus himself has come to take residence within you. And so the word has become flesh again. And is dwelling among the people of Dayton. And the word is looking for a way out. He's looking for a way to demonstrate his grace and truth in you. Full of grace and truth. I love talking to people about their crystals that they wear around their neck. You, you'll see it all the time. You'll, you say, oh, what, what, what's this for? Oh, this is for... Uh, uh, this is for mood. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what, what kind of a mood does it give you? Oh, it makes me feel happy. Okay. And what's the other one? Well, you know, that helps me with other stuff. And it's really interesting. And where did you, where did you get it? Oh, there's a plate. You can get all of them. 
So you, did they cover everything? All kinds of movies? Yeah, everything. And I'm not, I'm not being facetious. I'm not being dismissive. I'm trying to be, what's the word? Gracious. Because people are brought to repentance by other people being unkind to them. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Isn't that what it says? No, what, what, sorry, what was it again? What does the Bible say about that? It's unkindness that brings people to repentance. No, it's being right that brings people to repentance. It's being an evangelical that brings people to repentance. Yes. That's it. I knew it was. No, it's, it's being spirit-filled that brings people to the... It's kindness. It's kindness. Who, who needs kindness? Guy the other day, Sally was driving back from the airport and um, deliberately drove over some nails. <laughs> and... Uh, she didn't tell me that bit, but I'm assuming that's what happened. And um, it popped the front tire on my truck, which is not an idol. <laughs> and uh, she's, you know, so we had to order the tires because the tires are, you know, the size of Rhode Island. And, um, and so they, they ordered the tire in and I went to see the guy. And I said, how's it going? And then for the next five minutes, he told me. He said, it's crazy. He said, I'm not even supposed to be in the, in the shop. He says, I'm supposed to be out here. He said, I'm pulled in every possible direction. I can't hire people. I can't find people to help me. It's just crazy. And all he needed was somebody just to ask him a kindly word. And I encouraged him along and I said, wow. I mean, I, I, I hear this from everybody. I mean, it's like everybody's in the same boat right now. He says, yeah, I know, it's terrible. You know, and he says, oh, oh by the way, let me go and get the truck for you. I'll, I'll come and bring it around to you. As though he wanted to do something for me because I'd done something for him. It's kindness that causes people's hearts to turn. And, and look at what it is. That, that Paul describes as his means of being kind. He's, he's not just a pushover. He says, uh, he says in verse 31, he says, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, that it says in the NIV, the word is admonish, but it's not really a word that we use very much in English. It, it, means, it means a gentle prod in the right direction. Remember that I never stopped prodding you in the right direction, night and day with tears. Paul was always about challenge and invitation. He 
he wanted to help people. And he knew that the best way to do that was being clear and kind. And then finally, when you, um, when you look at what it is that Paul is talking about here, of course, he's talking to leaders of the church. And so they have special responsibilities. He says, I want you to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. He wants them to take responsibility for the things that they're called to be responsible for. Who are you responsible for? Watch over them. How would you do that? Jesus makes it clear. When he uses the word watch, he always connects the word pray. That's what he means by watching. Who are you responsible for? My parents, when I was 16, took me on one side. I'd just become a Christian. And they said, son, we're so glad that you've become a Christian. But we'd like you to give us a rest now. We'd like you just to give us a, you know, a, bit, of, a bit of a break. Because it's like every day. And I felt mortified. Because I realized that they just never did that. They were English people. They never say stuff like that. I realized that I'd, I'd kind of pushed them too hard. And I wondered how I could help them best. And so I prayed for them every day. And we prayed for Sally's parents every day. And we watched over them in prayer every day. And sure enough, the day came when they asked us to lead them to Jesus. Who are you responsible for? Watch over them. And the final word of Paul. Now, you know, if you're a leader, you know how the final word works. Jesus was a leader. He knew how the final word works. His final word to his disciples was go and make disciples. And everyone knows if you've been in any military service or amongst people who are of a military bearing, that the final word is always the thing that you do first. It's always the thing that's the most important thing. So of course Jesus says, make disciples. That's the most important thing. What is it that Paul thinks is the most important thing? Verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It's more blessed to give than to receive. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. What was his final word? to the leaders in Ephesus. 
Be generous. It's hard to be kind if you're not generous. It's hard to take responsibility and watch if you're not generous. It's hard to go past the natural diffidence and self-effacement that our culture would indicate to us is the right way of living and live out loud without being generous. It's difficult to be a person that makes disciples unless you're generous. Because this is what generous people do. They look for opportunities to give. Give encouragement. Give a smile. Give a little bit of something along the way. Be generous, says Paul. And if you live that way, maybe you'll be able to make disciples the way that Paul did. So as you hear the word kind of outlined to you this morning, what is it that God's saying to you? Worship team, we're going to come. What is it that God's speaking to you? Is it something about being helpful in the things that you teach and share? Is it something about the kindness that is so fundamental to being people in whom the word of God, Jesus, is living. Is it generosity? Or is it one of the other words along the way that caught your attention? Here's the key to being a disciple. Listen to the things that God is speaking to you about and respond to them. Jesus finished the greatest sermon of all by saying there are two kinds of people. One kind of people listen to what I say, but they don't put it in practice. And they build their life on the sand. And when the storm comes, the house falls down. And then there are another kind who hear what I say, put it into practice. And their life's built on a rock. And it doesn't matter whether the storms beat against that house, it'll stand. So what is God saying to you today? And, and how can you respond? As the band plays... Of course, there's always opportunity to respond. It may be that what it is that you're sensing God saying to you is that you need his help to be helpful in what you say. You need his help to be kind. You need his help to be generous, of course. Then come and ask him and ask others to stand with you in that request. It could be today that you hear these words and they prompt in you other things, a longing for the ways in which your life has not been shaped with kind words or helpful things to be healed, 
set free and restored. The Spirit is present today to do many things. And he's just looking for you to make a response.